0: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Robert, and uh, I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Richtop Church. We are a baby church; we are like 14 months old, I think. Um, but we've seen God at work, and uh, this weekend has been a really, I think, pivotal weekend for us as a church. As uh, the women of the church were experiencing um, the gospel being taught and reflected on, and worshiping together, and praying, and having a good time together, and the guys are doing the same thing. Uh, and we were also sleeping in tents. And so, yeah, the guy's a little more bleary-eyed than than the ladies, but uh, it was a great, great weekend. Um, we've been going through the book of Genesis also slowly uh, for the last, I don't know, 10 weeks, I think, 10 or 11 weeks, and we're continuing to do that. So keep your thumb in that Genesis 12 uh, passage in, in the Bible there on your chair, because uh, we're going to be going back to there. But... Um, this has been this has uh been, um all all that we've we've looked at so far is really been a race to get to abraham so it's it it has moved at a very high rate we've we've skipped generations like 10 generations and noah and 10 generations and now abraham so there's a lot of details that that don't get reported um and so the, the, the writer is wanting us to understand Abraham. It's partly why these first 11 chapters are even um, in the book. But if we were to sum up those 11 chapters, uh, we start off with creation, right? A self-existent, all-powerful, all-good God creates all of the universe. And the grand finale of that creation being human beings, those human beings being entrusted with the stewarding of the universe. Um, we then see a fall where a human being, uh, beings rebel against God, and it results in a, I've been calling it a decreation, a dismantling, a, an unraveling of the good and ordered creation that God uh, had set in motion. By the time we get to Genesis 4, we see a snapshot of that decreation up close and personal as we see Cain kill his very own brother, uh, Abel. Uh, humans do proliferate and uh, they start to to spread uh, across the world, Uh, but so does their sin. And by the end of uh, Genesis chapter 5 into chapter 6, we see that sinful human beings uh, are corrupt to the core, Uh, and that corruption reaches a threshold which precipitates an immediate judgment, and God sends that judgment in a catastrophic flood. At the same time, he offers mercy to Noah and his family via an ark. And so that uh, family is is saved uh, from the judgment and is is then placed as kind of a a renewed Adam and Eve uh, to start fresh uh, on planet earth. But humans proliferate again, and so does their sin. And after another 10 generations uh, after Noah uh, we see this not only individual corruption, we see a systemic corruption as human beings uh, collaborate in a kind of an unholy collaboration to build the Tower of Babel, to make a great name uh, for themselves, and to set themselves up as God of the universe. And so, uh, yet again, they cross a threshold that God sees as a, a sort of an uh, a indicator that, okay, they, they need immediate judgment. And this time, it's not a flood. He had promised he wouldn't do that again. But he judges them by confusing their language. And, and so out of that, they then disperse and scatter uh, all over the planet. And when we get to the end of that story, uh, we see the judgment and we're waiting for the mercy, right? Because this is what we see, this pattern of judgment, mercy, judgment, mercy. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any mercy, At the end of the Tower of the Babel uh, story, it's just a frustrated, scattered bunch of human beings that uh, don't really seem to have much hope in the world, which then sets up chapter 12. (laughs) And this is God's plan for bringing forth the offspring that He had promised back in Genesis 3 that would bring salvation to this frustrated, scattered, separated human race, but not only a plan to save, but a a pattern uh, for us to understand how God wants us to relate with Him. Maybe you've been wondering, what does God want from me? Well, you're going to find out in this passage what God wants from you, what kind of relationship He desires for you to have with Him. So we're going to see both of A big picture plan of how he's going to save humanity and a little picture pattern of how he wants individuals to relate with God. So if you flip back to Genesis 11, you you get to see some of the backstory of Abram. Um, We see at the end of this long genealogy, Genesis 11, verse 27. It's also on the screen. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Kind of some weird details, right? Like, the genealogy before this, there's no details. It's just name after name after name after name. And then we get to this little family of Terah and his kids and his grandkids, and the the narrative slows down and starts to give you some just bizarre details, right? I mean, one is just that they were originated from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? Now, this was a major city in Mesopotamia. Um, This city uh, is a place that would be considered kind of the capital city of Mesopotamia. Uh, In an online article from Britannica, this is what it says about ancient Ur. At some time in the 4th millennium BCE, the city of Ur was founded by settlers thought to have been from northern Mesopotamia farmers still in a calacolithic phase of culture. There is evidence that their occupation was ended by a flood, formerly thought to be the one of Genesis. So interesting, right? It's like... There's evidence that there was a flood. Couldn't be the one in Genesis. Um, Don't confuse me with the facts. Okay, uh, the next next little part of this article. Excavation of this ancient city has revealed incredible treasures in gold, silver, bronze, semi-precious stones, showing not only the wealth of the people of Ur, but also their highly developed civilization and art. Very important architectural monuments are preserved at this site. Foremost among these is the ziggurat. A three-storied solid mass of mud brick faced with burnt brick set in bitumen. Hmm, interesting. Sound familiar? Um, If you were here last week, you know what it's talking about. Rather like a stepped pyramid on its summit was a small shrine, the bedchamber of the moon god. So they've actually reconstructed this thing uh, to look somewhat like it probably looked uh, in, uh, you know, 4000 BC, And so this is a reconstruction of it. Here's a closer look at it. The next one. You see these kind of stairs going up. Um, and so this is this place where Abram was from, where his family lived. Uh, it's a great place, to, uh, you know, of technology and wealth and pagan worship uh, with definitely evidence of this worship of the moon god. And then it says... Another piece of information that Sarai was barren. Kind of a strange comment. It's like, what do you don't talk about on holidays? You you don't talk about religion, politics, and fertility issues among the women at the table, right? Like don't don't do that. But it's just out there in front of everybody. Like if she's she's barren. And if you didn't get it the first time, and she has no child. Like well, that's what barren means. But it, it just like doubles it, right? To let us know this has some kind of significance in the story. What is it? Oh, we'll find out later, right? And so uh, they're in this very uh, civilized kind of place, a lot of wealth, a lot of technology, uh, some evidence. There's indoor plumbing, all, all that kind of stuff. And then they leave. They leave the city. Uh, 11, Genesis 11, verse 31, uh, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. More kind of seemingly incidental details at the end of Genesis 11, um, that they're, they're heading to the land of Canaan, right? So here's where they're, they, they, they started in this map. Next, next slide. So this is, you know, remember sixth grade when you were in social studies and you learned about the Fertile Crescent? Do they still teach the Fertile Crescent? This means yes. Some of you don't don't know what the Fertile Crescent is. This is the breadbasket of civilization right here, all right, Mesopotamia. And and so here's the early Chaldeans down in here. And so they traveled from southern Mesopotamia to Haran, which is northern Mesopotamia. And their, tr- their, their, their initial destination was all the way down in here, into the land of Canaan. But they don't do it. They don't go there. They stop in Haran. For what, we don't know why, whatever reason. But dad just decides, this is where we're going to live. It's also another center for the moon god worship. Could be part of it. Um, and so they, plot, they plop down there. Uh, it's another wealthy city. In a very civilized place, a um, very uh, safe place, relatively speaking. Um, it's it's a it's a good it's a good place to live, right? It's like Austin, you know. It's nice, nice, nice city. It's clean, and it's a lot of opportunities. It's a good, good spot. And that's where they, they they then settle, and then Dad dies, right? Terah dies, leaves his family there in Haran, and they continue to live there, and then things get interesting for Abram and his wife Sarah. So this is where we pick up the story, Genesis 12, verse 1. So find that in your Bible. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, the Lord says, or strong argument, this could be translated, the Lord had said, and actually a in New International Version and King James Version, for instance, translates it this way. Genesis 12.1 NIV says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. King James Version says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house and to a land that I will shew thee. What a weird way to say show. Shoe, okay, cool, old English. There's a strong evidence that God had already said to Abram back in Ur, Go, get out, go to the land of Canaan. And that he didn't do it. In Genesis 15, 7, this is God saying to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In the New Testament, Stephen, when he's preaching his one and only sermon before he gets stoned, uh, Acts 7, 2, stoned by rocks. Not Anyway, uh, Stephen says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So Stephen, whose sermon ends up in the Bible, uh, is saying, actually, God was speaking to Abram back in (laughs) Ur and saying, get out, go. Now, that's kind of a sidebar there, but that encourages me that God is so patient. He's patient with people who are stubborn, who don't obey the first time, (laughs) And, and he just continues to initiate, 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 initiate with them, seems to be doing something similar with Abram. That's a whole nother sermon. We'll do that later. But the gist of what's being asked of Abram here in this call in Genesis 12 is summarized by commentator Derek Kidner as forsake and follow. Forsake and follow. Right? I mean, the King, the King James Version, you just heard it. It says, get thee out It is strong language. It is like, disassociate yourself from these things, and it lists off these things, from your country, or literally, your land. Disassociate yourself from your land, right? Leave the place, physical place, that you're used to, that you've been living in, that you know. You know where the good coffee shops are. You know where to get groceries. You know this place. Get out. Leave it, right? And then he says, to to, to leave your kindred. This is like, leave your ethno-linguistic group, the group you feel culturally comfortable with, the group that speaks your language, and it's easy for you to have conversations wherever you go, because you're all in the same ethno-linguistic group. Leave it. Disassociate yourself from that group. And then leave your father's house. Leave your family. Get out. Disassociate yourself from these that you've done life with side by side. In the ancient world, this is even more of a challenge because families were even more tight knit, way more tight knit than they are now. Partly that was for safety and security. Your family was your loan corporation, your police force. You had no loan corporation, no police force, no welfare system. You've depended on your family your your clan your tribe to survive and God's saying get out leave your kindred leave your family people just didn't do that it seems like the norm now in the modern age it's like I gotta go gotta go get away from my family and go do my thing honestly that really hasn't been the norm except for like fifty years honestly fifty maybe seventy that fifty honestly since I'm was, was a little kid. That's about the time when this, like, leave my family thing was happening. And here, God's saying to Abram, do this countercultural thing. Leave your land, leave your cultural group, leave your family. Disassociate from them. But not just forsake, also follow, right? Go to a country or a land that I will show you. Now, there's no details on the destination, it seems. There's no details. Remember the ark? Those of you that heard that sermon, it's rudderless. It has no, no way of propelling it. There's no steerage. It's just like, get on the ark and hope it gets where it needs to go. Trusting in the providence of God, something similar going on here. He's like, leave your land. Leave your cultural group. Le- leave your family. And where we're going, where I show you. Wherever I show you, that's where we're going. We're going to forsake, and we're going to follow. Now, that's a pattern of how God wants us to relate with Him. To to forsake that which is certain and comfortable and follow. Now, it it might mean you leave your land and your linguistic group and your family or not. But there is this this pattern of forsake and follow. Now, Abraham, or Abram, his name's going to change, spoiler alert. Um, Abram is doing this in part because he's also going to be blessed. God says, I'm going to bless you, right? And this blessing theme is a really strong theme throughout Genesis leading up to this point. seems to be something that God wants us to see through his word. So in the very beginning, right, Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. In Genesis 5.1, after Cain kills Abel, we read this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. Right? Genesis nine, uh, after the flood, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We've been saying that the blessing is to be favorable toward. But this is the heart of God, right? He's he's like, I, I want to be favorable toward human beings. And and he and he's being favorable toward uh, Abram and his family. And it's a personal favor. It's 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 relational favor that's given to uh, Abram. This is in stark contrast to ancient religion, (laughs) ancient pagan religion. Ancient pagan religion is this kind of nebulous transaction between me and, for instance, the moon god, which Abram was very familiar with. And you come out and you offer up your animal or your plants or, or your child, and you try to make a transaction with this nebulous moon god and try to get some blessing, try to get some, some favor. And so you bless the moon god, and the moon god blesses you. This is not the This is different. This is God speaking, God personally relating with the use of human language with Abram is not at all like the pagan religions of the day the lord said or had said and consequently abram's about in this next verse right he's he's going to he's going to leave he's going to do it right and this is part of the reason is because it is personal i keep harping on the trend in austin of people attributing good things to the universe or to karma It's like, I put good things out into the universe, and the universe gives me good things. This is not any different than pagan moon worship, guys. It it might seem a little more sophisticated, because like, the universe, it's no different. It's the same thing. Um, Taylor Swift, she has a a great song about this um, called Karma, and she says this about the karma and how karma is going to treat her ex-boyfriend... Has done her wrong, and she says, You're terrified to look down because if you dare, you'll see the glare of everyone you burned just to get there. It's coming back around, right? That's karma. I keep my side of the street clean. You wouldn't know what I mean because karma is my boyfriend, (laughs) karma is a god, karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend, karma is a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? right ex boyfriend karma's going to be on you it's going to be getting you because you've done bad things you put bad things out in the universe the universe is going to put bad things on you but not for Taylor sweet like honey karma is a cat purring in my lap cuz it loves me flexing like a vegas acrobat obviously the clean version me and karma vibe like that and so vibing with the moon god is really no different than vibing with karma or vibing with um the universe. Now, I'm no hater. Okay, we love Taylor Swift at our house. I'm not throwing shade on her. Okay, so just get that out there. Um, but I was like, this is a great, this is a great illustration of what I'm talking about here about putting stuff out into the universe or getting good karma. Uh, in contrast, the God of the Bible is a God you can know. You can know. You can't know the universe, all right. You can know God, and we can see Abram knowing God. God is speaking to him with the use of human language, and he is getting to have a relationship uh, from God, and that God is blessing him. Now, there's four blessings. Um, blessing He's going to be a great nation. He's going to have a great name. He's going to have the opportunity to be a great blessing to all the families of the earth. He's also going to experience some kind of reciprocation of blessing. All right, so let's talk about each of those four blessings. So number one, great nation. Now, to be a nation, you've got to have a land, and you've got to have a people. You've got to have a land, and you've got to have a people. Um, and so there's seven mentions of land in that in those nine verses that we just read. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. That word land or country is mentioned seven times. Uh, and then a people. Now, remember, Sarai, she's barren, a.k.a. she's childless. How are we going to have a people, God? Stay tuned, okay? Stay tuned for that. Um, but he's like, this is the blessing I want to give you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this uh, this people, and for the first time in the unfolding plan of God, we get to see God desiring to relate to a people, to a nation, and not just individuals. He he, he is still in, uh, relating to individuals, but he has a plan to relate to humanity in a nation, and so he's starting to to unfold that part of uh, his plan. Now, the nation of Israel is a hot topic right now. Um, There's a a, a horrific war going on uh, between Israel and uh, Palestinians, uh, specifically Hamas. And uh, there's a lot of conversations about what do these land promises, how do they connect to current-day geopolitical Israel? Uh, That's a massive question. And if you want to talk about it, we'll talk about Lazarus uh, on airport after the sermon. Because if I put a whole section in there, we'll be here for two hours, okay? But this is where these promises come from, right, about this land thing. Uh, and so Palestinians are looking in the Quran, and they're saying, well, we have promises in our holy book. And some Jews, not all, some Jews are looking in the book and saying, well, we have promises, uh, we have a divine right. And so that's really at the heart, in many ways, of the conflict, is this, these verses and verses in the Quran. All right. Blessing one, great nation. Blessing two, great name. Which means not only he's going to be well known, but he's going to be known and highly esteemed. He's going to have known as, as a person of great character. And so he's going to have this great name. Remember the Babel builders, those of you that were here for that? They wanted to make a great name for themselves. And here, God is making a great name for Abram. So he's not against human beings being well known, being examples. He just wants them to become well-known in examples on his terms, not, not in their own kind of sinful, systemic kind of terms, his terms, godly terms, good terms, terms of, of blessing and glory for God. So great name, great nation, uh, great blessing to all nations, blessing number three, right? This is the post-Babel mercy that we've been waiting for. When they were all frustrated and scattered and were like, What? Where's the mercy? God, where's your salvation? This is it. It's Abram. Abram, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to create a family. Then I'm going to, out of that family, I'm going to make a nation. That nation is going to be a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth. And so he does have a plan to, 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 to gather those that are scattered, he does have a plan for the great reversal of the dispersal. And it's through Abram and the nation that he is going to raise up. Then blessing number four is that Abram and 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 his family and his nation is going to be blessed by those other nations that get blessed. It's going to be like a reciprocation, a blessing for him um, and and his people. And that, at first you're like, that's kind of weird. What what is that about? And what we what we see is that. Israel is taking on kind of a messianic role, not kind of, in the Old Testament. Israel is like a messiah for the nations. It's a messianic role, uh, meaning it's, it's going to mediate the blessings of God to the nations. So they receive blessing from God, then they're going to mediate that blessing to the nations, and then those nations are going to show true faith in true God by blessing Israel. So I'll say it again. Israel's going to mediate the blessings of God to the nations. The nations are going to show true faith in the true God by blessing Israel back. You see this when they go into the promised land. They eradicate the people inside the promised land. Okay? They're just, they're, 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 there's a reason for that. There's judgment, immediate judgment, same kind of thing that we see in the flood. Um, but then we also see them make treaties with countries outside the land. And when they don't make a treaty, they wipe them out. They say, man, that's weird. Like, what's going on? Well, they're mediating the blessing of God to those people in that treaty. They're saying, God, through us, is favorable toward you, country, outside our our boundaries. And you can bless us back. And And then there's a relationship, and that nation is redeemed. Or you can reject the God that is trying to bless you through Israel, and then you get judgment. Right? They become the the Messiah in the Old Testament scheme. Again, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You can come come to Lazarus and we can talk about it some more. Um, the command for Abraham Abram is to forsake and follow, and get blessed and become a blessing for the world. And here's what Abram does, verse four of Genesis 12. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the processions that they had gathered. And the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, we'll stop there. So Abram, here's the call to get out. To, to leave your land, leave your ethnolinguistic group, leave uh, your family. And he says, okay, I'm doing it. I'm going to go to a land that you're going to show me. And he follows God to the land of Canaan. And there's some major obstacles, right? Well, he's one, he's 75. He's not a young dude. So that's part of it. But also, two, Sarai is barren, right? Like, The chances of this old couple having a baby, much less starting a nation, is zero. And yet, he says yes. He hears that call to forsake and follow, and he says yes. He believes in the God who is saying, I want to bless you. If you walk this out in faith, I'm going to bless you in these incredible ways. And he leads them to Canaan. And in Canaan, surprise, are Canaanites. Now, remember Canaan, those of you that have been with us on this sermon series, was the son of Ham, which was one of Noah's three sons. Canaan had received a curse, and the reason is because of his father, Ham's shameful treatment of Noah. And it was kind of a poetic justice that was given against Ham of not cursing Ham, but cursing his son. And so it's like Noah's basically saying, if I'm going to have a shameful son, like Ham, then Ham, you're going to have a shameful son, like Canaan. A lot of mystery there. I I don't understand that all 100%, but this is the origin story of the Canaanites. This is why this story is important. Um, and so the, the Canaanites um, are a very godless people, right? Very wicked people. We know that, in part... Because of Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's sort of a case in point to show us, give us a, a little on the ground uh, reporting. How's it going in the Canaanite culture? Is, is Sodom and Gomorrah. And if, if you don't know that, that story, uh, two angels of God show up. Uh, every male, young and old, shows up when, once they know that these strangers are in the city, and they show up and they say, We basically want to rape you, angels. So that's a little bit of a litmus test. Hey, how's it going in, in Canaan? Not good. Not good. In fact, it's similar to what it was like before the flood. Every intention of their heart is absolutely corrupt. Right? And they actually experience immediate judgment. You look at Genesis 19, they pass the threshold, and there's immediate judgment. Judgment, Not of all the Canaanites, but of two cities, Sodom and these are Abram's new neighbors. Not in Ur anymore, not in Haran. He's in Canaan. This is where God has led him. These are his new neighbors. This takes absolute unconditional trust in God on Abram's part. Um, in the book actually called Ruthless Trust by Bren Manning, he says this, the re- reality of naked trust is the life of a pilgrim who leaves what is nailed down, obvious and secure, and walks into the unknown without any rational explanation to justify the decision or guarantee the future. Why? Because God has signaled the movement and offered it His presence and His promise. This is Abram. He's left what is nailed down, what is certain. Why? Is there some logical reason? Is he like, I'm going to go to Austin because there's a lot of jobs and this is what I want to do? and No, he's, he's like, God has initiated with me. He's called me to the land of Canaan. And so here's what he does uh, when he gets to the land of Canaan. says in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So here we see Canaanites are in Canaan. It makes sense. Um, he goes to, quote, the place, probably a better translation is the site of Shek- at Shechem. This is a religious site, and there's a massive tree there, and it is a place of pagan worship. So huge trees in high places, these are the favorite places of, of pagan worship, um, and this place was known as a, as a heart, heart of pagan worship. The fertility cults of the Canaanites would have been worshiping there, there would have been cult prostitutes that would have been there that you could have sex with as a, as a means of worshiping the pagan gods. Um, you could also kill your kid as a sacrifice to these pagan gods. This is the kind of stuff that's happening at the site of Shechem. And this is not necessarily all new to Abram. He's a moon worshiper probably from way back, right? His daddy was a moon worshiper. He was a moon worshiper, right? And And now he's following the true God who has spoken to him. And he's walking through this, this 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 religious site, this Canaanite religious site, and when he's in that site, God speaks to him. <laughs> Verse seven, Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, "To your offspring, I will give this land." <laughs> this is so amazing, right? He's he's walking. He's been walking through the Canaanite land. He's been seeing this incredibly violent, wicked culture, and he gets to the heartbeat of the worship of the pagan gods, and he gets there, and God says, Hey, I want to speak to you again. I'm going to give you this land. Look around. I'm going to give you this land that's possessed by these Canaanites. And they have the power to completely annihilate this little family of foreigners. (laughs) And God's saying, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. Now, he'll do that a few times for Abram. He's going to need to hear it multiple times. (laughs) It's going to be a struggle to believe that God is going to actually do this. But he is not kidding. He is going to give the nation of Israel that land. And he does it. Now, here's what Abram does at Shechem. This is the back half of 7, verse 7. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. (laughs) Don't you love that? He he walks into the heartbeat of pagan worship, and there's this big tree, and they're doing pagan rituals. And he's like, I'm going to build my own altar to my one true God, and I'm going to worship him. I'm gonna worship him. I'm gonna worship him out in front of God and my family that I brought with me and all these crazy Canaanites. I'm gonna worship him. It's a really powerful moment where he he builds this altar and he worships the one true God. Guys, this is what the Jenners are doing in Crestview, right? They're the church planters that are gonna start a brand new church. They're showing up in Crestview. They're like, not very many people worship Jesus here. We're going to worship Jesus right here in Crestview, and we're going to invite anybody else who wants to come. That's how you plan a church, okay? It's a short version, but that's how you plan a church. And this is Abram and his little family. He's just, he's just like, I'm build, I'm build this altar, and I'm just going to worship the one true God, and I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to trust Him. This is part of the pattern, right? Because there, there's this forsake and follow, but it's being fueled by worship. You Think about it this way. Um, it, you, you see this next slide. there we go. You, you see this in, in, in Abram's life. It's like a cyclical where he forsakes, he follows, he worships, and out of the fire of that worship he forsakes and follows and he worships. and out of the fire of that he goes and does it again, and he forsakes and he follows, right? This, this is what we see Abram doing. He's a pattern. This is how God wants us to relate with him. He's a pattern. So he leaves the altar. He takes the next steps to follow God, verse eight. From there, he moved to the hill country, on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. When it says that from there he quote moved, it literally means he pulled up stakes. He pulled up tent stakes. And then he went to another location and he pitched his tent. He does not have a permanent structure to live in. He has left some of the most civilized cities on the planet. And he now lives in a tent where he has to pull up stakes, follow God to the next place, put put the tent back down on the ground. We went camping this weekend with the guys. It was really fun. For one night, it was really fun. I don't want to live in a tent. I can tell you that. Right? It's, 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 it's fun, but it's, it's not that fun. But following God is like living, it's like camping, guys. It's like living in a tent. Y- you don't know. You don't know. When, when is he going to say, okay, time to forsake, follow, let's go. <laughs> this is the kind of life that God is inviting us into. Forsake, follow worship. And what does he do? He, he builds another altar. <laughs> you see the pattern? Gets up, follows the next place, builds another altar. Okay. Worship the one true God. All right. What's next, God? You're worthy. You have ultimate worth. Whatever you say, I'm doing it. I know back at earth I didn't do it, but I want to do it now. I want to follow you. And I'm willing to forsake whatever in order to follow the one true God. So here we see the big plan. We see the little pattern, the big plan that God's going to save the many through the one. We talked about this with Noah. He's going to save the many through the one. This is a continuation of the plan that God said in Genesis 3. I'm going to bring an offspring who's going to be a sin and serpent crusher. It's continuing that plan. He's showing this pattern of this saving the many through the one, which as Christians, we understand these are echoes in the Old Testament that are pointing to Jesus. He is the one who's going to save the many. All right? so, so we see the plan, but then in the, on, the, on the smaller scale, we see the pattern, this forsaking and following and worshiping. Another way to say this is living by faith. Sometimes we say, well, you know, got to have faith, got to live by faith. What does that mean? This is what it means. Forsake, follow, worship. Forsake, follow, worship. The writer of Hebrews sees the thread of faith through all these stories that we've gone through in the last few weeks, right? Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel, remember, Abel offering to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch, we didn't talk about Enoch, I'm sorry, was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. They're all being commended for having faith. And then we get to the part about Abram or Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that was, has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are you know, 2,000 years after Abram. And, and he's he's saying to them, you, know, you you want to rely on and trust in the God of Abraham this, this, this is the what he wants he doesn't just want this for Abraham he wants this for every person who is a follower of God this forsaking this following the God the God who is worthy of our ultimate worship and that Abram was leaning on him so completely, he wasn't just trusting God for this land here on planet Earth, but he was trusting him for a city that God is the builder. He's trusting him for eternal life. This is how much we're being called upon to trust. Trust God now and for the not yet, that we would be with him for eternity. And so this is a, a, a pattern or a prototype of how God wants us to interact with Him. This is no nebulous karma, guys. This is a God who speaks. This is a God who is personal, and He's personally calling, not just Abram, not just the original hearers of the book of Hebrews. He's calling you. He's calling you to forsake and follow the God who is worthy of your ultimate worship. He's calling you. Now you may think, I just don't think I can do that. I, I, I just, I don't think I can respond with that kind of trust and faith. But this is how faith works. It's exercised by people who can't do it. Yet again, Abram and Sarah are examples of this, right? Also, Hebrews 11 verse 11: By faith, Sarah received herself received power to conceive. What? A postmenopausal woman. Has a baby? How, how could she do that? By faith, God met her in that and gave her the ability to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered Him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You know, Sarah, she she can't conceive, but. Abram, he's like as good as dead. That's Ouch, that hurts. Yeah. Um, but what, what the writer there is saying, it was beyond their own power to do the thing that God was asking them. This is the nature of faith. So you hear that call to forsake and follow the, the one true God is worthy of your worship. And you're like, I, I I don't think I can do that. You're in the right zone there. <laughs> Because you'll need the power of God. You'll need the gift of even faith itself in order to forsake and follow the one true God. Now, the writer of Hebrews continues recounting a bunch of faith of a bunch of people throughout that Hebrews 11. And it all culminates in the the one where all these promises arrive. And that's Hebrews 1 through two. It says, therefore, since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You can see those same movements. Throw off everything that entangles you. Forsake, right? And then follow. Pursue God in faith. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. He is the author, the perfecter. He is the one in which all of these promises, all these echoes from the Old Testament culminate in Jesus. He is the one who saves the many. He is the true Messiah that Israel is pointing forward to. Israel herself is a type who's pointing forward to Christ as the true and better Messiah. Just just as Israel was, was the conduit, the mediator of blessing to the nations, and the nations could or could not bless back, right? Now Jesus, the Messiah, He is mediating the blessings of God to the nations, and they can now, by faith, choose to receive those blessings or reject those blessings. Rejections of those blessings from Jesus results in judgment. Receiving those by faith results in a reconciled life with God and blessings like you would not believe, so much so that they include eternal blessings, eternal life through faith in Christ. So how might we respond? I think there's a lot of ways we could, but one is to become a Christian this morning, to forsake and follow the one who is worthy of your worship. This is what happens when you become a Christian. You you turn away from sin. You turn away from any other things that you are ultimately reliant upon. They could be good things, but you turn away from those things. You get out, you leave, and you turn toward full faith and trust in God who's revealed himself ultimately in Christ, and that Christ has died for you to save you from your sins. We can actually know more of God than Abram did. Abram doesn't even have a Bible, right? He has no long, faithful, long line of faithful followers in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in church history like we do. We have so many people we can look back and go, oh, that's how you live this life of faith. We have so much opportunity to live by faith. And you may be thinking, I am so far from being a Christian. I am a moon worshiper. Let Abram's story encourage you. <laughs> this is what God does. He, he saves moon worshippers out of their cultures, out of, out of their uh, upbringings, out of their ideological uh, worldviews, and he brings them into a new life of faith in God. So if that's you this morning, put your faith in God, in Christ. Who's died for your sins. For those of you that you're you're thinking about sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus, with let's say the moon worshipper category, and you're like, oh, they'll never nah, th- mm, no, they'll never become a Christian. Hey, let Abram's story encourage you. <laughs> God is reaching into the lives of people who are far, what we would think is far, far, far from God oftentimes those people are closer to God than the religious people. Honestly, I'm just... oftentimes they have a, a, a fresher perspective, more open mind than those who are highly religious but don't understand the gospel. And so let Abram's story encourage you to move toward them with truth about Christ, to invite them to put their full faith and trust in Christ. For those of you that you are Christians, this is a reminder that this living by faith is not just a one and done, right? We don't just exercise saving faith, become a Christian, and then we live according to self sufficiency. No, I mean, Paul says it's in Romans one. It's for faith. It, 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 it's by faith for faith. It's like it just like this repeating cycle of living by faith, and and we do that, and it's and it's fueled by this worship that we experience of the one true God. And you may say, well, this, I mean, Abram's example, it's a little out there, okay? I mean, God's not going to call me to, to get out and to leave my ethno-linguistic group and my country. He might. He just might, maybe this morning. But we do want to put it on the table. We do want to say, God, I will forsake everything, I, whatever. I want to follow you. And I'm telling you, that is where the good stuff is. In this absolute, utter abandonment to God in faith. Is it hard? Yes. Is it hard for me? Yes. My default is to go back to self-sufficiency. Go back to what I know. Even when I've gone to places that were you know, totally new to me and I was living my faith, then those things came, became familiar. And then I don't want to leave those places. Right? And God's like, no, we're going to the next thing. And again, it could be geographic. It could just be... Relationally, it could be something that God's calling you to in the city. It could be something in this church where you're like, I need to move out and and, and forsake my current comfortable state and go out and trust in trusting God in a new way. So let Abram's example refresh you, encourage you, challenge you. And why would we do this? Again, from the book Ruthless Trust, Manning writes, Against insurmountable obstacles. And without a clue as to the outcome, the trusting heart says, Abba, which is Aramaic, like daddy, I surrender my will, my life to you without any reservation and with boundless confidence for you are my loving father. You, you do it because he, he loves you, right? This one who is worthy of worship It's also the one who's blessing you out of a a father's heart, and it unleashes something in us that we uh, are able to exercise when we become a Christian, but it it increases and it grows as you walk with Jesus. You have more and more ability to trust because you're beholding the God who is worthy, the God who loves you. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. I mean, think about this. This is is the one who's going to save the many. This is the one that all those echoes and all those types and all those predictors, they were all pointing forward to Christ. And Christ is is, is with his disciples on the night on which he's being betrayed, the night before his death. He he takes bread. What does he do? He blesses it. (laughs) blesses it. Is that just some sort of like... Well, we should pray for our food, and that's what Christians do. No. It, it, he, he's saying, I, I'm going to give you a blessing, disciples. And after he blesses it, he breaks it. And then he offers it to them and says, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the ultimate blessing that all those other blessings are pointing forward to. Was like the Christ, the God-man, would... Give his life as a blessing for many. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He not only is saving individuals, he's saving a community. He, he's saving uh, not just a nation or not just a kingdom, but he's saving the nations, right? and he's gathering them into his church. This is the great reversal of the dispersal. The church is a little glimpse, or should be a little glimpse, of people coming to faith in Christ and joining together in the local church as a little, just a little glimpse. Hey, world, this is where history's going. Come and join us. There is one Messiah. Put your faith in this one Messiah and come and be a part of this community. This is is what we're, exemplifying every time we're taking the bread and the cup. And so if you are a Christ follower, we welcome you to the table to be reminded of the of the blessing that God has given you in Christ that you have received by faith. So this is partly why when you come down here, I, I encourage you to do this. Okay? And I haven't said this in a while, so don't feel bad if you haven't done this. But it's a it's a it's a receptive posture. It's 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 a it's a I think a better way to exemplify faith, right? as opposed to, I'll take that. It's, I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna receive, right? And so we we role-play this every time. You see the body and the blood exemplified in this bread and cup, and then it's offered, and you get up, and then you receive it, and it's an exemplification of faith. This is what we're doing. And we're not just doing it as individuals, we're doing it as a community, as a family, that God has joined together in the blessing of Christ. Those of you that are not yet Christians, we want you to take Christ. If you didn't notice, to receive Christ in faith. If, if you're still like, I'm not exactly sure what you're saying when you say that, reach out to me or to someone in the room that you know is a Christian and say, hey, tell me more. Like, what is he talking about when he says receive Christ by faith? And they'll be happy to explain those in further details. So let's pray. I thank you for the the privilege it is to be in relationship with you. That we don't just have to roll out of bed in the morning and just kind of have this nebulous sense of the transcendent, but a God who loves us, knows us, speaks your word to us. Thank you for the the scriptures that you've given us that, that are your word to us. And I thank you for each one who has... Experienced that call to forsake and follow, and uh, have have done that in uh, an initial way, and have been growing in that. And I pray that the, this sermon this morning would uh, activate our faith, Lord. Lord, this story to me is so undomesticated. I I just marvel at it. What you did to call Abram to to leave and to go, and so I know, God, in, in different ways, some some geographical, some not. You're, you're calling people in the room, leave, go. Help us to understand, what does that mean for each of us? What does that mean uh, for our church? I, I, just, I pray that this would be an encouragement, God, and thank you for this ultimate blessing of you going to the cross for us, Dying in our place, forgiving us of our sins, reconciling us to you and each other. What a blessing. (laughs) And we're grateful. We're grateful for the story that brought this blessing about. Um, That includes even an old elderly couple, Abram and Sarai. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.